Please take your Bibles and open them to the middle. Find Psalm 6. It's an unusual position that I find myself in this morning, jumping into a sermon series that started without me. But we are seeking to find God in the middle, in the middle of the Bible, in the middle of the Psalms, in the middle of any variety of situations and circumstances we might find ourselves in. Our conviction straight from Scripture is that all of Scripture is useful. Nehemiah 3 is useful, right? The poetry in the Bible is often useful in a special way because it involves not just our intellect but our hearts, our emotions. The psalmist help us to find God in the middle of a wide variety of situations and circumstances, emotions. Whatever it is that we're experiencing, whatever it is that we are feeling, God is there. And admittedly, it is sometimes easier to find Him in times of peace and of health and of happiness. And we will look at some of those this summer precisely because we can't take it for granted that we will remember to acknowledge Him and praise Him and thank Him in the middle of those good times. But we're also going to take a look at and focus on some of the Psalms that help us find Him in less likely and more difficult places. We start today for the next three weeks using the Psalms to help us find God in the middle of our sin. We find this morning a psalmist, David, who is overwhelmed with grief over his sin. As we look at this psalm, a question for you to consider, when you experience grief over your sin, and I guess I ought to ask, if you experience grief over your sin, Does that grief drive you toward God, or does it push you away from Him? Does the grief that you feel over your sin drive you toward God or away from Him? I'd like to ask that you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 6. O Lord... Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. 
Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. May God add His blessing to the preaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would You meet us this morning in the middle? Would You meet us in the middle of this psalm? Would You meet us in the middle of our sin? God, I pray for those this morning that are here that are languishing because of their sin. I pray for those whose bones, whose souls are troubled under the weight of sin. And they fear your wrath and they fear your anger. God, would you meet us in the middle of our sin with the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus, would you do it in a powerful and an unmistakable way that we will give you praise and glory for? We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. The psalmist here, again, that's David is clearly torn up over something. And though the word sin is never used, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. Look at how deeply the psalmist is affected. This is point one in your outline that's available in the worship folder. Verse two says he's languishing. He's troubled both in his bones and in verse three, in his soul. And this is a prolonged thing. This has been dragging out. His crying, his weeping, his tears. It's happening every night. Verse 6. See, he's painting a picture with his poetry. Think about the hardness of bone, contrasted with the soft squishy substance and fluid that composes the eye that he complains about. And then the next thing he paints his picture with is the soul, which isn't even a a physical part of the body anyway. But the picture intends to show his whole existence has been deeply and adversely affected by his sin. And so I'll ask you again, is this how your sin affects you? Is this your response to the guilt and conviction of sin? That your whole existence is affected? Or... Are you able somehow to blow it off? Can you relativize it? Can you say, 
yeah, but at least I'm not as bad as, as some of the other folks that I know. Can you callously disregard your sin? Can you know that it's there? Can you know that God's Word calls it out as sin, and yet somehow you're able to turn a deaf ear and a hard heart? And this is a crucial question here. Because if we're to find God in the middle of our sin, we won't do it if we're not genuinely affected by it. Does your sin, does your grief over sin drive you toward God or away from Him? We've got to consider how sin affects us. We also need to think about point two in your outline. God's response to sin. Part of the reason for David's deep distress over sin is that he knows who God is and what he can do. Look at verse 1. David requests that God hold back his anger and wrath. Admittedly, those are two pretty unpopular things to associate with God. Our views of God can easily and often be skewed toward a God who is only loving, only kind, only gentle. We create in our minds a vision of God as a, as a soft, kind, semi-senile grandpa whose sole reason for existence is to give us all the things that we want. But David knows God. He knows that anger and wrath can certainly be his response to sin. It can certainly be his response to the violation of his will, of his law, of his holiness, of his righteousness. And that's something that we need to wrestle with. You need to wrestle with it. Is it okay with you that God be angry? when the people he created rebel against him? Is it okay with you that God pour out his wrath on those who reject and despise his instruction and his law? Folks, sin makes God angry. It fills him with wrath. And David knows that this anger and this wrath are very often associated with his discipline. Now, here's a huge topic, the discipline of God. And it's one that is so important for the Christian to understand well. And it's not the scope of this message. But we can at least look at the two specific specific examples that David gives here. Verse 7, he mentions that his eye wastes away. 
All right, so that's, that's poetic language of sickness. All right, his health is adversely affected. And then he mentions foes in verse 7 and enemies in verse 10. All right, so sometimes in his discipline of us, the Lord brings sickness. Sometimes in the Lord's discipline of us, he causes our enemies to rise up against us. And Scripture is full of examples of both. Now, the discipline of the Lord is a complex topic. But at the risk of oversimplifying things, and so that's a risk, know that... I admit I'm oversimplifying things to a certain extent, but I want to help you wrap your minds around this. This is so important. God uses, in discipline, God uses pain and illness and difficulty usually in one of two ways. The first way can be as a direct result of our sin, right? You sinned, therefore you will experience pain blank, whatever it is, right? A direct cause and effect relationship. Sometimes the pain, the illness, the difficulty comes as a direct result of our sin. That's option one. Or two, the pain, the difficulty, the illness comes as a means of revealing our sin, right? He brings that into our life as a way to humble us, to make us more sensitive to what he's trying to show us or tell us. So it can be either the result of sin or it can be a means of revealing your sin. Right? So think about those two purposes very broadly, not exhaustively. Right? I'm putting lots of asterisks there. Right? But think about it in those two terms. And as you do, if you're taking notes, make another little list over on the side. This is a list of three things. As you think about those two general purposes, here's three cautions, if you will. Number one, be very careful drawing that direct cause and effect relationship when bad things happen. Consider Job. Okay? His intense pain and difficulty and suffering was neither the result of his sin, nor was it intended to reveal his sin directly. Now, the Lord does confront him later on about his whole mindset and his whole thinking about God. But directly, that suffering was not the result of his sin, nor was God using it to reveal any specific sin. He had another purpose altogether for that scenario. Right? So the caution here is it's difficult to discern. Tread carefully. Right? You can't just instantly draw that connecting line and say, oh, bad things must be because of sin. Right? So be careful. Number two. I'm going to risk oversimplifying again, but this is important. On this side of the cross, 
That is, after Jesus has died, suffered the punishment for our sins, had the Father's wrath poured out on him, right? On this side of the cross, the Lord's discipline is much more likely to be used for that second purpose of revealing our sin than it's going to be a direct result of our sin. Let me say that again. All right. On this side of the cross, now that Jesus has suffered the punishment for our sins, our discipline is much more likely going to be used by God to reveal our sin rather than as a re- direct result, as in, you sinned here, therefore you suffer this. Okay. Now, why is that? God does not inflict pain and suffering in our lives to make us pay for our sin. Though lots of folks think that way. Lots of folks would say, oh, this painful thing has come into my life. It's the Lord getting me back for what I've done. He does not. Our Father does not. He will not pour out His wrath on us for our sin. He doesn't do it. He won't do it. He can't do it because all of His wrath has already been poured out. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus this morning, He drank the cup of the wrath that you deserved fully and completely. There's not a drop left for you. All right. So discipline is is difficult to discern. Be careful drawing that cause-effect relationship, right? It is different on this side of the cross And thirdly, it's something the child of God should view as absolutely wonderful. It's good. It's something to be grateful for. See, the Lord's discipline is one of those things that proves we belong to Him. And and the classic text on that is Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then skipping down a little bit, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. 
cherish it. It comes to you from the hand of a loving father. It proves you are his daughter or son. Now, I found myself about to get tripped up in this passage, thinking in terms of an either-or, thinking in terms of, of, a, of a dichotomy, if you will, of the Lord's discipline on one hand and His grace and mercy on the other hand. Of, Lord, don't discipline me, but show me your grace and mercy instead. And that's a false contrast. Because the Lord's discipline is grace and mercy. The Lord's discipline is gracious. It is for our good. It is merciful, right? Because anything the Lord brings in our life short of death and hell is mercy. It's more than we deserve. The wages of our sin, Romans 6 says, is death. Discipline, though unpleasant, is both gracious and merciful. So I want to tease out the grace and the mercy of discipline just a little bit as we look at David's response to his sin, our third and final point. Look again at verse 1. Notice that David's response to God in his sin is not to say, oh, please don't discipline me. No, his request is that the Lord's discipline would be tempered by his grace and his mercy. It's a cry to the Father that says, I know what I deserve. I know that you would be just and right To give me what I deserve, please don't give me all I deserve. Allow your grace and your mercy to factor in. Verse 2, it's the request, be gracious. Verse 4, it's the request, deliver, save because of your steadfast love. Because of your steadfast love. And so here's this word. If you hear last week, some of the passages that we walked through together, it came up. This word, hesed. I can't even get that guttural pronunciation of the Hebrew right. And it's a word that in English we can't even get the translation fully right because we don't have an English word that encompasses all the richness and the fullness of meaning here of this loving kindness, of this uh, merciful, faithful, covenant-keeping, never-giving-up-on-you love. See, this important part of David's response and his request, save me, heal me, deliver me, forgive me, not because of anything about me, right? not because of my worth, not because I deserve to be forgiven, but simply because of your character. Because of who you are. See, it's, it's ultimately all about Him. Do these gracious things for me because it's who you are and it will bring you glory when you 
live out, when you act on who you are as God, that you are faithful, covenant-keeping, never-giving-up kind of God. David gets that it's all about him, and that's where this sort of argument that he makes in verse 5 comes from. He's reminding God, he's telling God, for in death, there's no remembrance of you. In, in Sheol, that is, in, in the grave, who will give you praise? David knows that God could bring his life to an end, justly. Without having to give any reasoning at all, he could do it. But he makes this somewhat strange appeal based on the fact that he gets that it's ultimately about God's glory. He says, if I'm in the grave, I can't keep praising you. I can't extol your grace and mercy to those around. Now, does God need David's praise? No, God doesn't need anything, right? make the rocks and the hills cry out. Some of the commentators think this is manipulative of David. That he's reaching, that he's grasping. And perhaps it is. I don't know. Perhaps there are some mixed motives in there. Which is just good news for us, because guess what? (laughs) Ours always are. But here's what I do know. This request, this appeal, it sprang up from honest desperation in David. From a heart that does desire to praise him and to extol his grace and mercy. From a heart that does desire to save his own hide. Honest desperation. You're not going to get it right. You're not even going to get your... Your cries for forgiveness, right? Even those, and somebody famous said this, and I can't remember who it was, said that even our our tears of repentance need to be bathed in the blood of Christ. But here's the beauty of it. He makes these bold requests, mixed motives or not, desperate cries to the Father, and something wonderful happens the end of verse 8, beginning of 9. He's heard. He heard me. He accepts my prayer. Commentators can be so funny. A lot of them wasted a whole lot of time thinking, oh, well, so obviously this psalm covers a large period of time. And it's just condensed down for our reading because obviously he's got this great problem, but then later on he gets some resolution to that problem and the Lord hears him and everything's okay again. So clearly this is a a big span of time. Hogwash. That misses the whole point. I don't think there's been any change in David's circumstances. I think his enemies are still knocking at the door. I think he's still got whatever sickness he's got. But I think what's happening here is what often happens. When we cry out to the Lord in desperate honesty, when we consider his character, 
when we remember his hesed, his steadfast, faithful, never giving up on you love. When we do that, there comes a confidence. There comes a reassurance that washes over you, that sets your soul and your heart at ease. And you realize, yeah, he's hearing this. He's going to do something about this. I think very likely for David, it involved remembering the covenant promises that God had made to him. Sometime later today, go back to 2 Samuel 7. And this beautiful and extensive set of promises that the father makes to David, 2 Samuel 7. He says, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Your descendant is going to build my house. My steadfast, faithful, covenant-keeping love will never depart from him. See, David's banking on those promises. He's holding God to his word. And when he does that, verse 9 naturally flows out. Oh, it's okay. He hears. He knows. He will heal. He will rescue. And see, this is something that David's enemies don't get. They're mentioned several times in the psalm, right? Foes in verse 7, workers of evil in verse 8, enemies in verse 10. And there are several possibilities here. Perhaps they were threatening David with physical harm, trying to kill him, right? That's something that has certainly happened in his lifetime. It's a real possibility. It could just be they're mocking him and deriding him and taunting him, right? They see that David has sinned in some way, and they say, he's doomed. There's no way God's going to bless him or use him. His throne's about to crumble. There's no way he's still going to be king after this blows over. He's blown it. And see, his enemies would arrive at that conclusion wrongly because they don't understand Hesed. They don't understand this unconditional aspect of faithful covenant keeping, never giving up on you, love. They don't get the fact that God forgives, that his children can be okay only because of what God does and not because of our performance or obedience. They, they think, ooh, David deserves to get the wrath of God poured out on him, failing to see that they also deserve the same. And ultimately, they fail to see that those covenant promises God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7, those promises ultimately weren't about David. Those promises were ultimately pointing to a greater descendant of David who would, in fact, experience and endure all the wrath of God on behalf of God's people. See, David's enemies were likely focusing on the externals on their behavior, on David's behavior, on performance. And they had very little regard, if any at all, for what God can do on the inside. 
It's very interesting. Verse 8. This exact phrase, depart from me, you workers of evil. Guess who picks that up and uses it later? Jesus would use that exact phrase, quoting from the psalm, because, buddy, he knew the scriptures. He's speaking to the religious leaders and to the Pharisees, those fixated on the externals and their own performance, the things that they did that they thought made them worthy participants in God's kingdom. Jesus foretold the last day when many would come to him, he said, with a laundry list of the things that they've done in the Lord's name, no less, even ministry-related stuff. A remarkable religious resume And Jesus said he would flatly turn them away. And he would say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. See, they never dealt with their sin. They thought a relationship with God was just doing good stuff. They didn't deal with the fact that at square one they had grievously violated the holiness of God and justly deserved his wrath. So they never cried out like David does for God's steadfast love and mercy. And so if you're hearing this today, And if you sense the guilt and the weight of your sin, and you realize now that God's wrath and anger are both real and deserved, then cry the cry of David from verse 4 of this psalm. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray. My Father, I pray that in your grace and mercy, you would make the weight and the guilt of our sin unbearable. Lord, I pray that in your mercy you would cause our bones to ache, our eyes to grow weak, maybe even our enemies to rise up against us. Lord, do whatever it takes to grab hold of our hearts and to turn them in kindness toward repentance. Lord, I pray that there would be some miserable folks here today if that would ultimately lead them to you. If that would ultimately lead them to the joy that David experienced when he remembered, when he realized that you hear, you accept our prayer, you bring healing, you bring deliverance. Oh God, would you do that today? We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.